Hi, everybody. It is uh, Friday, June 26, 2020, and it is time for episode 39 of the uh, LT Live Chat, of the Luke Thomas Live Chat. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. You might know me from such places as uh, a show that's named after me on Sirius XM. I got a show on Showtime Digital called Morning Combat. If you want information about both of those, description box below. Uh, we got a lot to get to today. Poirier Hooker preview, some some Paige Van Zant questions, fighter pay seems to be something that doesn't go away, and a whole lot more. Whatever else is on your mind. So without further ado, let's get this party started. And there we are. Uh, as always, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to the uh, channel below. Very much looking to grow the subscription numbers, although I have not been uploading that much the last couple of weeks. I've been sort of mentally out of it. I just sort of stare at Final Cut Pro and I'm like, do I really want to make another one? I've had, you know, it's weird with the everything happening in the pandemic. I don't mean just like related to COVID, but I don't know. Just everything with the pandemic and all the changes that it has brought about. I've found it hard to, I don't know, concentrate, something like that. Um, yeah, anyway, it's been weird. So it's partly my own doing that I've not grown my numbers sufficiently. But if you'd be so kind as to help me out, that would be great. Um, okay, well, without wasting any more time, let's get to it now. If we can, you guys, as you know, put all your questions in the uh, <coughs> community pa t uh, page tab so I Go to youtube.com slash Luke Thomas and then go to community. I always put it up 24 hours in advance and let you donks fill it up. Okay. And then I take a look at it. So without further ado, <coughs> let's check it out. All right. 209. That's a shitload. Okay. Oh, and by the way, if you'd like to jump the queue at the end, I will go to your questions if you would give a donation. Certainly under no obligation to do that, but if you do, I will answer your question after about an hour of free questions. Okay, let's rock. Uh, in the scenario where Paige Van Zant loses her fight versus Hebos, who I interviewed today, by the way, I'll put that interview out this weekend. Not not Paige, but Amanda. Coupled with the fact that she's essentially burnt bridges with the UFC by criticizing pay and letting her contract run down, how much will these things weaken her negotiation position with other organizations? I mean, listen, if you lose to Hebos and uh, let's say it's bad, I think Hebos has had one stoppage in the UFC and then two decisions, although they were like, I think, pretty clear cut. She looks like she's the real deal. I'm actually going to say not that bad, right? And the reason I'm going to say it is because it doesn't help. Obviously, if you lose and people just, you know, drop interest in you from from losing. But at the same time, like if you're signing a man, excuse me, if you're signing Paige Van Zandt, are you really signing her because you think you can make her a champion in your division? I mean, maybe. I, I would suspect not. I think the reason why you would sign her is because of the general level of awareness and fan appeal that she brings, which is significant. Like you're not... You know, a lot of fighters, all they have is a little bit of popularity and then maybe fighting ability. And the two are very closely related. For Paige, I'm not so sure that's true. The, tr the two seem a little bit separate. And so, yeah, it's never great when you lose. It's not like a thing that doesn't matter. 
but it doesn't, it's not nearly as costly for her. My wife and I have a fluid debate going regarding at what age it is appropriate to allow our sons to watch combat sports, primarily MMA, with me. Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, every child and situation is different. For instance, my son has trained kickboxing in BJJ, but is still only eight and a half years old. He catches the UFC in passing here and there when I am watching and wants to be able to sit down with dad and watch, but I feel he is still a little too young to see blood and violence that often happens with an MMA fight. What age would slash will you allow the your child to watch? Yeah, I've not thought about it, to be honest with you. What do you suggest for others? Does having training experience uh, in one of the forms, so kickboxing, the composite martial arts, uh, Muay Thai, BJJ wrestling, mean they may be able to handle it in a younger age than a peer who has never trained? Definitely, I feel like if they've trained, that helps. Like if a kid has an idea about arm bars and can understand not so much the strategy, but like what goes into those kinds of things, um, that will definitely help. For sure. I think that is absolutely true. They kind of understand the seriousness of it a little bit more, too. And they can internalize the context. If you're really that worried, I mean, listen, I don't know what the appropriate answer is here because I've not given it any thought. If I'm trying to find ways that to like, because it sounds like what you want to do is you don't want to totally separate them from this. There must be some kind of way to watch. Number one, you could have them watch the composite sports. You could have them watch judo or jiu-jitsu or wrestling. Obviously, there's nothing really live. Well, there's, there's some live jiu-jitsu, but there's not much live in the way of wrestling and other things. But to the extent you can find anything like that, the composite sports, maybe not so much the striking, although even then you could do that. That's one thing that's possible for you. The other thing I would say is maybe they can't watch fights live with you, but maybe you could screen some. Like maybe you could put together a list of like, you know, here are 20 fights I could watch with my kid. Your wife could take a look at them and maybe they're like uh, arm bars, but they're not too vicious, right? Like not all arm bars are created equal. The arm bar that Rousey hit on Tate in their first fight where her elbow was completely bent the, the wrong way. You know, that's probably not great. Um, maybe you skip that one, but there might be some other ones you could look at and say that's not so bad. Or some striking fights where there's not hardly any blood. Maybe there's not so much volume to get worried about. Maybe you could explain it to them. And maybe even that part is a little bit too much. Maybe you could have them watch, you know, Olympic uh, amateur boxing, right? So sort of rather than just going right to the hardest core version of, of combat sports, you could ease them in with the composite sports and then you could really don't make it, don't have them watch it live pick some ones that you think might be safe, confer with your wife, and then see where you can go from there. Uh, that probably seems like a better way than just like, hey, let's roll the dice and see what happens with a live show. Because with a live show, yeah, you might get most that are not so bad, but then you might get some that are really gonna, you know, <laughs> that could be vicious and you really want to avoid that. So I would say don't rely on live content. Um, filter it. Put a parent filter on there, screen it, make a list, and then go from there. But, you know, obviously also talk to somebody who's an expert on these matters. That's always the first thing you should do. Luke, wanted to hear your thoughts on Usman training, uh, changing camps to elevation with Trevor Whitman. Do you think this hurts or helps Usman? 
Also, what do you think the chances are he stays if he wins big over Burns? Seems like a win-win situation for him and Gaethje to be sparring partners with a mastermind like Whitman. Excuse me, at the helm. Yeah, buddy. Uh, I love it. I mean, listen, here's the thing about uh, Trevor Whitman, right? I'm trying to get my face to not be blurry. There we go. It's a little bit better. Um, God damn it, this fucking thing. Here we go. If you are going to train at a... If you could pick a camp to start, like... If you were in Kamaru's shoes, what would you do, right? You, you knew you had to switch it up somehow. Where would you go? How could you not look at what he's done just in the totality of his career, Trevor Whitman, that is, certainly what he did for Gaethje and just come away anything uh, other than impressed? Very hard to do that. And why? Because it's not like, I mean, we, oh, he's a good coach. Okay, what does that mean? It seems like the thing you could pick up on with Gaethje is that he doesn't make you somebody you're not. He just makes you a much better version of it. And Kamaru is not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination, but he is certainly at a much more relatively senior level of his career, not merely in the status in the division, but in terms of his technical maturation. You don't want to just completely change things. So what you would want to do is tighten them and then have a game plan for the particular challenge ahead. And listen, Trevor Whitman is not so good that anybody can go to him and achieve any result. No, no coaches like your his fighters are still going to get losses at times, but Kamaru is basically at the height of his. Uh, again, I, th I think he has room to grow, but I don't think there's been a point in his career where he was better. So in that sense, I'll say he's at the height of his abilities, relatively speaking. That's a great place to be for Trevor Whitman. Let me see if I get this straight. You can probably give me a very good game plan. And then take what I'm already good at and sharpen it up a little bit. Now, again, it's also one camp. How much better could it be after one camp? You gotta have it doesn't matter again, it doesn't matter who it is. You need to have some somewhat, somewhat managed expectations as a consequence. But I love it. I love everything about it. One note of clarification, I saw another coach at Elevation Fight Team mention this. Usman is not with that team. He's with Trevor, and then I think a few sparring partners from Elevation, but I don't think he's working with Elevation. He's not in any of their other classes. He's not, he's not like a member of the team in the kind of way that you would understand it. So it's a little bit confusing because it's like, it sounds like he's working with him. Well, he is, but usually when you join a team, you become part of all the team's activities, and I don't think he's doing that. I think he's just paying people to work with him. And you're asking, you know, what might happen if things go well. Yeah, I think it's very possible he could stay with him and like split his camps. Or he might end up doing what Luke Rockhold did, which is like, you know, I'm still affiliated with AKA, but now I train over at, you know, with Henry Hooft. Uh, and Henry Hooft is a great trainer. It's not like, I mean, Kamaru won a title under the guy. It's not like he's some chump. He's, he's great. But would it hurt you to go over and train with Trevor Whitman? I would be very surprised if he somehow regresses. Which also isn't to say that Burns can't win. But if like Kamaru just looks like a bad, a worse version of himself, I would be, never say never, I would be shocked. I would be shocked. You got a guy who is at the peak of his abilities, who has time to develop a game plan under the tutelage of somebody who has a profound understanding of the fight game and how to make what somebody is already good at more menacing. 
you know, hard to see how that goes wrong. What do you think of Peter Yan going at O'Malley on Twitter? I think it's elevating sugar to another level. For now, it's just social media fodder. Until there's a fight, a second. until there's a fight announced for between these two, and there's more that they can use from it, it's just fun. I mean, it's not like it's you know, it doesn't mean a whole lot until they can use that as a stepping off point to something else, like a press conference, a press tour. You know, uh, a showdown like Jones and Cormier had in the MGM Grand Lobby, that kind of a thing. So for now, it's just fun. But yeah, it's clearly it's obvious that like, A, Peter Yan doesn't mind doing the whole jibber-jabber thing. And number two, I think O'Malley is on everyone's radar, is what this tells you as well, right? O'Malley is clearly having an impact. You know, he still has fights to win before any kind of Yan versus O'Malley consideration can even be thought of, but I don't think he's that far away, and they can feel the they can feel that dude coming down the tracks, and they're sort of like you know, everyone's doing the whole puff your chest out thing before the guy makes it down there. But um, that's what it tells me less about what this would do to elevate him, more as a signal of who they see coming. Am I the only donk who thinks Volkanovski would be a tougher matchup for Khabib than most 155 contenders? Would Khabib have a hard time holding the former 200-plus rugby player down? Well, um, I've never thought about it. The problem with Volkanovski is not that he's not strong or even stronger than a lot of 55ers. The problem is that Nurmagomedov is absurdly strong for that weight class and highly technical. So, you know, as good as his punching power is, I doubt it's heavier than anything Nurmagomedov has felt. And certainly I acknowledge that Volkanovsky is squirmy underneath, but the size differential is significant. And you're like, oh, well, he was you know previously 200 pounds, right? But like you can see more naturally, he's not. You know, I like Volkanovsky can make 145. Khabib cannot. He just cannot get down there. It's just not possible. I don't think he's blown up as big as Volkanovsky, but he just cannot make that weight. And so there is a natural size disparity. And for his size, everyone I've ever talked to who's trained with him has said he is absurdly strong. And you said Poirier, you heard Poirier say, excuse me, I have a runny nose. You heard Poirier say, oh, it wasn't that he was strong, he was just really tight with the positions. Okay, either way, I've heard both. I've heard both. So, you know, I, I, I take Volkanovsky's takedown defense seriously. I take his ability to scramble underneath pretty, pretty seriously. But that might be too, too far of a hill to climb. Dan Bilzerian, I think that's how you pronounce his name, said on a podcast last year that he knows a UFC fighter that microdoses magic mushrooms before all of his fights. He didn't name him, obviously. Just wondered if you had heard anything like this on the rumor mill. Thanks for bringing back the live chat. You hear lots of things on the rumor mill. Have I heard stuff like this? Yes, I have. Um, but I've heard lots of things that were like, conf- you know, these rumors are have to be taken seriously. And then a couple years later, you find out it's total nonsense. There's a lot of things out there that people say, you know, how much do we trust Dan? 
you know, the guy's whole life is like an Instagram ad for <laughs> for wealth and white privilege. I mean, it's, you know, uh, <laughs> and I'm joking about it. You know, I'm not being serious, but, you know, I, I, can I tell you that that's great? That the, I've never heard anything that crazy. I've heard things that crazy, but, you know, as to the specificity of it, I would be a little bit skeptical for now. Jones says he is okay with sitting out a couple of years. He says he's doing that for his fellow fighters and for legacy. Critics say it's just for him. So what if it's just for him? Is there a way to thread that needle, make a meeting with some labor lawyers, key fighters, etc., and try to kickstart this union once and for all? Let me just sort of make a comment here about this if I can. Even if, like, okay, is John doing it for somebody else? I don't know, probably not, right? Do I care if he's doing it for somebody else? No. Because the reality is, let's say I'm wrong about this strategy. And let's say the strategy works. Even if John, let's say John in his, let me make, let me, let me, let me make up a scenario. Even if John makes up uh, in his mind says, I don't give a flying ass fuck about any other fighter. This is for me. If he ends up getting the UFC to break to his will and agree to give him something approximating or right at his demands, it doesn't matter if he's trying to do it for anybody else. You have now set a precedent. Now, everyone else who might have some leverage, and again, maybe they miscalculated, but the point being is if John Jones gets them to bend, he is hardly the only person who's ever going to get them to bend. That's the point. It wouldn't matter. It just wouldn't matter. Um, and also, I don't even understand the mechanics of it. If John gets a raise, great, because I think he deserves one. How does John getting a raise result in everyone else getting a raise? Unless what I said previously, which is that if he breaks them, Others might be able to break him. But number one, he wouldn't need to be doing that on their behalf to make that happen. Number two, that still wouldn't help everyone in the rank and file at scale. It would only help potentially other people who would have a sufficient amount of leverage. It would still be very, very contained to your, you know, your probably your high-end uh, headliners or something like that. So like this clan, like, oh, he's only doing it for himself. So fucking what? So what? You know, he's, he's supposed to look out for everyone else. I mean, it would be like, if they did, you could compliment them for it. And if you want to say he's being disingenuous about it, look, make your own mind up. It does, to me, it, it makes no difference. It makes no difference because either way, it will have the same kind of effect. Um, but the last thing I'd say is like you mentioned, you know, and you wrote, et cetera. So maybe in this case, you were thinking about it. But like labor lawyers, key fighters, blah, blah, blah. Like you need all that. You need people who are labor organizers. I mean, that is the key ingredient that is missing here. I, I, um, it was actually one of you guys who watched this live chat. So what was her name? Hold on. Let me see if I can find her name. You guys had actually recommended it to me. I had missed it. Let me pull up the, uh, the old podcast here. Uh, it was... Jesus. Hang on. It was... What is her name? 
you guys had mentioned this labor organizer lady who was just incredible. You know what? Let me. I bought her book. I've not read it yet. It's another one I'm behind on. Hold on. Let me pull it up here for you guys, and I'll show it to you. Uh, okay. So I've not read it yet. So I'm not giving this a. Uh, here we go. Jane Mackel Mackalevy, Mackalevy. I'm not sure you pronounce her last name. Uh, you guys had told me about her, and you had said that she did this interview where she had talked about. Um, here we go. This is one of her books. A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing in the Fight for Democracy, Jane McAlevey. McAlevey. Uh, she is a college professor. I'm not entirely certain where. I have forgotten. I think I want to say maybe Berkeley. Jane Mac. I'm going to get to the story here in just a second. Yeah, she's a scholar. Where is she a scholar? Uh... University, well, she was she was educated at the University of Buffalo. And I think she teaches, she got her at Harvard Law School. She got her degree. I'm not sure where she teaches now. Um, maybe CUNY, something like that. I'm not sure. In any event, she is, uh, she wrote a book on, people don't seem to understand there are many different layers to labor organizing. And, uh different, not really different ways to do it, but right ways and wrong ways to do it. And sort of what the keys are and how, like how you get like nurses in the same hospital who might be different races, even different economic backgrounds that might have different salaries, different spousal conditions, different political worldviews. How do you get them all to see themselves as having a shared fate? And she talks about the difference between mobilization and organization and mobilization is fairly simple, which is sort of what you're talking about. Organization is much different, which is when you have to get people who don't think they have a shared fate to then believe that they do. Uh, that's the hardest and most important kind. And how you do that is what she specializes in. Now, I'm not saying we have to get this scholar to come do it, but it seemed to me if you don't have somebody who has that particular kind of expertise, you're not going to get there. When I heard her speak in this interview, it was immediately clear that there is a skill set specifically related to this activity that you must understand at a very high level, uh, probably to a strong degree experientially as well, uh, certainly at the level she's at, to understand how to do this repeatably across the nation in different occupations. Just getting a bunch of people to be like, hey, don't you agree this is a good thing, is woefully insufficient. So uh, just to be clear about something, getting back to all of this, this is why when people are like, oh, do you think sitting out will do something? Probably not, although I can't say for certain. I remain very skeptical. But if I'm right and you see a fighter sitting out and then you see how far you have to go to get to unionization, to me, the real kind of activity that will get the UFC to substantively change, not merely pay or whatever, any other concern that a collective bargaining agreement would address, and you see how far apart they are, you begin to grow pretty skeptical of what it means to sit out. Can't say it won't work, because I don't know that, but I'm, I'm very skeptical. 
Can you break down a little bit in the changes and improvements to Dustin Poirier's offensive and defensive boxing over the course of his career and give your thoughts on the cool stonewall defense he uses, the one where he raises one uh, lead elbow and kind of ducks his head down behind it, yes, like this, and then he kind of gets below it. Ortega does it as well. It's not, not as common as you might imagine, but he does do it. Man, I, I, if you've never taken a trip down memory lane with Dustin Poirier, I really recommend it. The guy came to the UFC at 22 years of age, I believe. He might have been, been younger in WEC. I have to go back and look exactly how old he was. But I know his UFC debut, he was 22. The guy has grown up in front of us. You know, he had double-digit fights by the point he was 22 years old. I think he was like 10-1. and one. You know, if you go back and watch like the Pablo Garza fight or something... And then you go watch what he did against Max Holloway. It's almost like two completely different fighters. I mean, there is a common denominator that he likes some of the same weapons, like a duck down, overhand left, um, a push kick from the left side. He likes to use, um, you know, some of his footwork patterning is still the same. But you're asking what the improvements are. They are substantial. Number one, he sticks behind the jab in a way that he did not used to. Certainly not with the same degree of effectiveness. Number two, his his range management has become vastly better. How do I know that? One, you can see him switch stances uh, as a way to close distance. That's one thing he's gotten pretty good at. But more than that, go and watch him in his old fights. He used to uh, he used to fall down a lot because he would be so far away. He would lunge into you know, some kind of situation to get closer and he would throw a heavy punch. Oftentimes it would miss and he would like off balance himself. Look at his balance now. He almost, a little bit he might because, you know, he might try to finish somebody or something. But in general, you know, he is very much, his weight is centered underneath him and he is very, very slick footwork. He can close that distance more nimbly, whether it's behind the jab or some other setup. Uh, and I think one of the major differences now is, holy shit, dude, his timing is incredible. Dustin is not the fastest lightweight by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if I had to give a speed edge in this fight tomorrow, I'm probably going to give it to Dan Hooker. And I think that's something he can probably use to great effect. But if you're asking me who has, at least in terms of his hands, like Dustin doesn't get to the target by being quicker. He's not Zab Judah. He's got a little bit more of the Mayweather thing. And I'm not comparing him to Mayweather in the sense of like they're both that good in their respective sports. But I'm saying, is Mayweather the quickest guy in boxing? He's fast. He's definitely fast. But no, he's not. What he does have is, I mean, Mayweather has the sharpest of sharp timing. And so he just gets to the target in a way that makes it look like he's so quick. Because what he's doing is he's, getting, he's catching half beat right there or or some other way in which he's tricking you with his timing and it is absolutely about as close to flawless as you're going to see on a boxer Dustin's not quite there but his timing is very good and so it just looks like it came out of nowhere it's not like the arm punch is super quick it's just that he has really picked up on when you're stepping where you're going what your movements are uh, a lot of times he was catching Max off of his double jab and then he pops you. He's very good about if you try and feint with a shot and then you come back with it. He, he, so if you like pop and then you come back and forward and you try and stick the jab again before you can even finish sticking the jab, he pops his over the top or like a right or something. Um, he's better about throwing in combination. He's better about attacking to the body, his shot selection. 
is so much smarter. He makes much better decisions. Now, he still gets a little bit, um, he can still be hit when he gets, a, like if he has an opponent hurt, he likes to swarm. And a lot of times when he swarms, he'll actually swarm from orthodox as opposed to southpaw. And so when he swarms from orthodox, his defense isn't quite as good, but his trickery is because he's hitting you with this, hoping you'll go into his left, which is his dominant hand. And so he can just crush you with it. And a lot of times it works. A lot of times you'll see him frame with the right here. He'll frame, 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 and then come over the top with the left. You'll see that a lot too. Um, his, I mean, he's just gotten a lot better. The only sort of knock on him a little bit is that, um, again, sometimes he can get a little overzealous. That's one problem. And then maybe another one is, um, you know, checking of the leg kicks, I think is still a bit of an issue, which I think is going to come into play with Dan Hooker. So... I mean, you know, in terms of just distance, I mean, everything is so much smoother, so much more balanced. The, 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 the different ways he sets up the attacks, his timing is better, his angling is better. It's just, you know, I can't say enough good things about it. And his defense, you're right, it is very good. And for a guy who does this, he can be susceptible to the uppercut a lot, but not as much as somebody who ordinarily does this, or as you mentioned, this. Um, to get out of the way, which is more like actually closing the shoulder to the jaw. I'm, I'm just sort of sticking the elbow out. It's a little more like this. But um, in general, you know, you'd be open to body shots and you'd be open to uppercuts with the style of like sort of defense that he has. And even then, he, he's better about moving his feet to get out of the way. So he'll cover up and move his feet at the same time. Right? He doesn't stand there and then cover up and then try to re-attack. I mean, every, every part of it is better. Every part of it is better. It's phenomenal. It's amazing to like, it's like, uh, dude, when, I, I don't know how, how long or how far Sean O'Malley is going to go. Chances are pretty far, but who's to say exactly where, right? But if he has a career, like how old is Dustin Poirier? Right? How old is this guy? And we already lost two years of, uh, you know, Sean O'Malley's career. So Dustin's 31. Imagine six more years of Sean O'Malley, but doing the kinds of things that he's doing now which is what Dustin Poirier has been doing, which is busting his ass to get better. Dude, Sean O'Malley's going to be a motherfucker in six years, you know? Uh, it's that kind of a thing. You're watching this guy grow, and it's amazing to see. It's truly amazing to see. If Nate Diaz didn't beat Conor McGregor, what would have his UFC career look like? I believe that win over Conor has hyperbolized his skill set and thus made him overrated by fans. He was never a good wrestler, as proven in the Rory McDonald fight. Talking about uh, Nate. He has poor kickboxing skills, as shown in the RDA fight. He was also injured into that fight. Also has the inability to check leg kicks. And in my opinion, he doesn't beat the top five people in either division currently. All right. Well, again, this is the problem with Connor. If you don't. Say he walks on water, his supporters think you're a hater. And if you say that uh, he's good, he's very, very talented, then his critics will tell you that you have hyperbolized his skill set. You just can't find a way to win. I mean, you're asking me if he had lost to Diaz the second time, you know, what would we have said about him? I don't know. You know, would he have gotten the Mayweather fight? Maybe just by virtue of star power? Obviously, that win was pretty redemptive. Uh, and then after that came the Eddie Alvarez fight, you know. Uh, I think that was 202 and then 205, if memory serves. 
So probably he would not have gotten the fights that led to some of the grand, the grand stages that he ended up achieving. The question is, would he have gotten there a different way? Because he still would have been popular and he still would have been well-liked. That's the hard part to say. If you're talking about Nate, do I think that people... Um, Do I think do I think that people hyperbolize parts of Nate's skill set a little bit? Yes, but at the same time, they get wrong what he's good at. So he was never a good wrestler. That's true, but he has somewhat better takedowns than you might imagine. It's just that his defensive wrestling to me is not that great. His offensive wrestling is surprisingly decent at times. Number one, he has poor kickboxing skills. He was. This was the only thing I really object to. I actually think he's got really good timing on his boxing as well. The problem he had is, you know, people are like, oh, that fight with Masvidal was close. Dude, I went back and I watched that fight in close detail, I want to say a week or two ago. That was not a close fight. I don't give a flying fuck what anybody tells you. That was not a close fight. Masvidal was clearly the superior fighter. And that is, it was true in real time. And it was especially true after the fact. And I say this as very much an admirer of Nate Diaz's game. You just got to call it like you see it. Jorge was vastly better. Vastly. I mean, two different levels, basically. Um, If they want to run it back, that's fine. But there ain't much mystery about who's better in that one. And so in that sense, what happened with him was, I think he got frustrated as well. And I don't think he showed as good as he could have been. So there's something to be said for that. The RDA fight, he was injured and not motivated because uh, he was really battling with the UFC at that time. But I think if you go back and you watch something like the Michael Johnson fight, when he can really get a good sense of leading you and then timing you, Nate Diaz is just really, really, really good. Plus, obviously, as you know, he's tough and he's very good about finding sneaky uh, uh, uppercuts and other forms of damage up against the fence from like overhooks and underhooks, really surprisingly wears you down with that kind of a thing. And another thing he's good at is, if you guys notice when he throws a one-two, it's not bop, bop, right? Listen to the timing. It's not that, it's this. That's what he does. You ever notice that? He'll pump the jab to the body, pump the jab to the face, pump the jab to the body, and then when he throws the one-two, it's not, it's. You ever notice that? He's really good about sneaking that right hand. He did it to Connor many times in both fights. He did it to Michael Johnson. He's very good about making you think that the jab is coming and then throwing the two in such a way where if he was throwing it like this, you could probably see it coming and you can get under it or block it or roll with it. But he throws it like that. And so it always lands right behind. He tricks you with the timing on it. It's nice. It's nice. Sean O'Malley claims he got ripped off in Reebok royalties. What's your take on this? Well, Reebok didn't challenge it, although maybe they couldn't have. I mean, (laughs) what do you want me to tell you guys? (laughs) Like, how many different ways do you need to find out that the fighters are underpaid before you start believing? Which I know is not necessarily your question here. Um, You know, they don't get a cut of the TV money. Okay. They uh, get about 20% overall revenue that they generate. Um, 
Also, I had a very famous manager reach out to me, tell me recently, and I have not had a chance to verify this. I do not know if this is true, but I had a, a famous manager reach out to me and tell me that what the UFC does is they pay what they believe is something like 45% of what their net revenue is after they take out all of their costs. So it's like 50% of, or something close to 50% of what's left over. I've not run the numbers to know if that's true, but they were adamant, adamant about that. Um, and then, you know, this was the big thing at the Reebok deal time. It's like, dude, I don't even really care about the Reebok deal if, like, are you going to put in the same amount of money you're taking out? And if you are, it's like, okay, it's still not great, but how much can you complain? But the problem is they not only did this deal, which then restricted their options and killed off a market, they didn't put as much money as they took out. And then they made these claims like we're going to sell all this merchandise and then give you royalty checks. I mean, two problems with that. Number one, no one bought those fucking kits. You know, only the donks bought the kits, okay? And there's a couple of y'all watching, and that's okay. You you might be nice people. That's fine. But it was the donks who bought the kits. Okay, number one. Number two, the major problem with Reebok is I've said this before. I've purchased some of their gear at like Dick's Sporting Goods. It's nice gear. I'm not. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's the nicest gear I've ever worn or or not. But it's perfectly good. Like it was comfy. I liked it. I would. I would buy more Reebok gear. It's fine. I don't know about their shoes necessarily, but some of the other stuff was 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 perfectly okay, uh, even good. Would I recommend it to others depending on what they needed it for? Yes. Yes, I would. The problem with Reebok is less that it is that they had. They are just super shitty at creative. They had no one in-house, or if they did, they did not enable these people. Their ability to produce creative content is virtually non-existent. And that is the problem. That is really where all of the issues fall. Because if, and also like whatever arrangement that they had, because the Reebok said, oh, that's a deal. Sean O'Malley's deal with UFC is... That's how he got paid. We have nothing to do with that. Okay, right. But I mean, if they're wearing your gear and selling your merch and they're getting those checks, you're going to be implicated whether it's fair or it's not, right? So that's sort of the world we live in. But the, the major problem is those, those O'Malley t-shirts sold. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if they actually got a pretty fair shake. Imagine if like by percentage, they didn't even get a fair shake, but it wasn't terrible. And Reebok was like really good at creative and they were constantly pumping out shirts and apparel and cool stuff. And you were buying, dude, I bet Brendan Schaub shall, sells more merch with the Thick Boys Bicycle Club than Reebok does. I, I legitimately mean that. The guy who did my logo and all my stuff, Judd Lively, is I would put anything he's created for me over anything they've created ever. And I absolutely will take that Pepsi challenge. Uh, they they can't do it. So even if they got like a like a not even a great deal, but they were like making constantly good creative stuff, and then selling it, so that in the end they just sold all this great shit. And where even if it wasn't the best deal, you still got a bunch of cash in the end, right? Imagine if that was the case. But they didn't even do that. They had the worst creative I've ever seen. Like, is do I doubt the functionality of their gear? No. Did they have to create the first generation under an expedited timeline that was going to make it hard for any apparel brand to look good? Yes. 
totally understand that. Uh, did they probably get sold a false bill of goods from fighters like Matt Hughes and other ones? If you guys don't know, there was apparently a famous meeting where I guess like the Liddells and the Hugheses were like, oh, the fighters will open, you know, will welcome Reebok with open arms for all these reasons. And then the fighters rebelled and they were like, what the fuck happened? Did they get sold a false bill of goods? Probably. But if there's any problem with the Reebok deal, um, aside from all the things I've mentioned, it's creative. And, you know, if the UFC's taken too much, in the end, it doesn't matter. But if the UFC would, like, let off the, the brakes here a little bit, and then Reebok was much better at creative, like other brands, I think, can be. And this was really a churning kind of industry. Like, I'm not into pro wrestling, but I've heard there's a company called, like, Pro Wrestling Tees or something. And they must put out content all the time, man. And I've looked at it. They're, the creative there is phenomenal. Whoever the UFC goes to next, you ask me what's missing, it's that. I mean, could, and also, that's like a way to promote people. Like, oh, the UFC is not that great at promotion. Dude, because, like, first of all, that's somewhat of a fair and then also in some ways an overstated claim. And it's complicated. But shit, dude, if you can create effective merch for people, like, how did they not have a hot balls shirt? For Derek Lewis, or maybe they did, and they, you know they didn't. They didn't get it out in time. Let me let me see. Like, let me go to uh, Derek Lewis hot balls T-shirt. Let's see what comes up. I think he might have had one. Yeah. So if you go to Buck T, I'm not, I don't even know if that's a real place, but they exist. My balls was hot. You can get it at Amazon. I don't think it has anything to do with Derek uh, with uh, UFC. Uh, USA in this hoe is over at T Public, which I'm sure is just, you know, some pirated thing. You know, I'm looking up, for example, okay, so I put in, here, here's my search result. Derek Lewis Hot Balls t-shirt. Here are the first URLs that come up. Amazon, Amazon, Redbubble, Next Level, I don't, I don't know, T Public, Etsy, eBay, Trends Tees, Represent.com, and then that's it. How is that possible? How is that possible that no one did that, leaned into that? It's just nuts. You can literally see there's a market for it. If you could just monetize this in an effective way, like I keep saying this, dude, every time the UFC has an opportunity to, uh, to alleviate complaints about fighter pay, they never do. <laughs> it's just shocking. It's like you keep taking all these steps to, to like make sure that the argument lingers in the media. Maybe don't do that. Uh, let's see. A few weeks ago, it was, I believe it was Ben Folks wrote a piece about how the Superman punch has gone out of style. Its uses has evolved. What are other techniques that used to be commonplace but have been phased out or been used in noticeably different ways over time? Mount is not as common as it once was. <clears throat> Um, the paintbrush or Americana, right? So that's back of the hand to the mat, elbow out, elbow up, I should say. That's not as common. You used to see that at heavyweight all the time. It's a low percentage move. It only works on really low-level donks, but it's possible. Uh, Kimuras, like people lock up Kimuras and they attack with Kimuras as like sweeps or as a way to get off the fence or as a way to create a scramble. But they don't really use Kimuras as like a finishing technique all that often. You see them, but it's not as, not as common as it used to be. 
Um, stomps have gone away. Obviously, kicks have gone heavy to the calf, less so to the thigh. I'm trying to think of like there's punches that people don't do as much as they used to. People don't brawl as much as they used to, believe it or not. The technical level of striking is pretty strong. Um, I don't know how much spinning back fists still play a role or not. That one's new. Or that, that, that thought I have. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not new. But um, I don't know what the numbers on that would say. But those are definitely some. Mount is very much a lost art. Looking at the welterweight division, there seems to be a lack of activity. With that being said, if you were a UFC matchmaker, what fights would you make out of Leon Wonderboy, uh, Kisera, this person writes, Colby Masvidal, Lawler, RDA, Pettis, Woodley, Pons, and Nibio? All right. I would go, let me pull up the rankings here. I think I got them up here. I would go... All right. I mean, on some level, you have to do Covington versus Masvidal. I'm not saying that that is what makes the most sense for the division next. You're asking me what I would like to see, I guess, that. Uh, but Masvidal maybe gets the winner of Usman versus Burns. Maybe you do Woodley versus Covington. Uh, maybe you could do um, Edwards versus... You could do Edwards versus Masvidal, but there's no way he takes that. I mean, it's just not possible. Um, you could do... Kiesa versus Wonderboy. It's kind of interesting. Um... You could do Woodley versus Chiesa. I would also like to see Jeff Neal put in that mix, too. I think Jeff Neal is maybe the most underrated guy in that division. Something like that. And you're like asking about Lawler. Lawler is way down at 13. You could do Lawler versus Neal. Um, Lawler versus Dos Anjos. Something like that. What are your thoughts on panelists receiving suggestions from the UFC rankings? Yeah, if you guys didn't see the story... Um, okay, so the way it would work is as follows, at least as the way it was explained in the media. If you're on the rankings panel, then you get this like this cheat sheet, and I'm not saying that anyone's cheating in that sense, I just mean like a cliff notes or whatever, of all the fights that are coming up, people's ranks, uh, what they what is, um, you know, who's coming or going in the division, that kind of a thing. And I think in general, if they wanted to do that, I would actually not only like be okay with it, I'd actually say it's great. Like giving some stats, giving some key pieces of information. Do they have mutual opponents? Do they have an opponent that this guy beat, that this guy lost to? Why? Um, are there any controversies? Are they coming in off win streaks or losing streaks? Where do they currently rank in the division? How many times have they been inside the top five or top 10 or top 15? I think all of those things about context actually will make the rankings better. My particular form of objection is when they're like, oh, with a win, he should only move one. Or with a loss, they should only drop two. When you start prescribing very specific um, number placement, I think that's my problem. And I'm not even here to say that the number placement 
that they'd be suggesting is wrong. But what you want to avoid here is impropriety, which is to say, we don't know who, who, so the way it was explained was that these rankings come from uh, an MMA site, a major MMA site. I do not know who that is. And that uh, they may do that just on their own or that they may be doing it at the behest of the UFC. If they're doing it at the behest of the UFC, then it begins to look like the UFC is prescribing forms of change to favor particular fighters or get ones they don't like moved down into less convenient roles. And of course, the UFC can ignore those rankings all they want, but they do play a little bit of a role as a, as a maybe a rough guide to matchmaking or um, you know who they might favor. And I don't know if that is true because we still don't know enough about the situation to say who's actually behind it and, and who for what purpose. Also, it would need to be measured how much these prescriptive changes were followed and also like to what extent those prescriptive changes were defensible to begin with for us to really see if there's some like vast conspiracy here. Even if there is an innocuous explanation, if it does come in fact from the UFC vis-a-vis this site, to me that's still a problem. I think giving people who rank more information uh, and context of wins and losses and strengths and weaknesses and all the things I mentioned, I think it actually makes the rankings better or at least in theory it could. And I cannot declare to you that the suggestions of individual movements are the end of the world. But to me, if that is coming from the UFC, that is, you are, you know, that is the, you're wagging the dog at that point. Uh, Even if you don't mean to be, even if you're just trying to be helpful, you can't do that. You can give, you can give as much helpful information as you think but at some point, the helpful information turns into hand-holding. And once you cross that line, it's a little much for me. It's a little much for me. Uh, I heard you're a fan of Arsenal Fan TV. God, what a fucking channel that is. What's your best AFTV interview and favorite AFTV personality? Do you ever get angry when Madrid lose the same way as Arsenal fans? Not really. Madrid usually wins. And they, you know, I mean, the last year, well... You know, the, I mean, there's been, you know, there's been some turnover, you know, uh, the, (laughs) you know, the Solari and Lopetegui moments of the last uh, season weren't awesome, but Zidane is back and they're first place right now in La Liga, you know, which is great. Um, They've been looking good too. I mean, they've been, they they played some shitty teams, uh, but they've been looking pretty good. But if you guys have never seen Arsenal Fan TV, I cannot overstate how fucking great this channel is. And it can't you couldn't do that. I mean, there are other fan channels for major Premier League teams, but it doesn't work as well, if you ask me. Here's why. So Arsenal is a is a major team uh in London. I think North London. Um uh, I could be wrong about that. I have to go look at these geography again. But they're right, they have a rival, Tottenham. And uh they're one of the bigger Premier League teams, certainly historically. Historically, that is very true. Here's where they are now. This is a team that, um, you know, you can go, I mean, they've had legends playing that club, uh, you know, for decades. And, you know, Thierry Henry played for them. They had one of the best teams ever, in, if not the best team ever in Premier League history with the Invincibles, right? Uh, winning the Premier League trophy and a whole lot more beyond that. And, uh, you know, it's a team of glory. And they're still pretty good, and they still get big signings. 
but they have an American owner now who is famously kind of a cheapskate. So they're, <laughs> they usually hover outside the top four, top five. They're usually inside the top eight. All of the transfer windows are usually like, sometimes they can be good. Like when they got, you know, Lacazette or Obama Yang recently. But a lot of times they're like really disappointing. <laughs> they had a coach who was a legend who had coached the Invincibles team for a long time. And uh, there was this huge debate inside the fan base about whether or not they want to get rid of this long-standing coach who'd been there forever. And they'd gotten their best trophies under him. But from the outside looking in, it had also kind of looked like his time had passed, you know? And here's why it set it up so great. Because they were still good enough to be part of major tournaments, either Europa or Champions League play. They were still good enough, obviously, that people cared about their games with their rivals. Uh, they were still good enough to get wins over big teams, right? So it's not like they're totally out of it. But they're kind of on this, like, bubble a little bit where they're still kind of surfing off of past glory. And the team has, like, from that level, pretty clearly declined. And the fan base is kind of irate about it. And their frustration when they lose, I mean, I hate to say this because I like it when they win. Like, I don't root against them in that way. Like, I don't cheer for Tottenham at all. It's fucking hilarious when they lose. And then when they had those back-to-back -back defeats, I don't know, it was like two or three seasons ago, at Bayern, right? Remember when they lost five to nothing? <laughs> and, uh, oh God, it was fucking, I mean, you just had, you. it was like, uh, you know, it was like deaf comedy jam. It, you couldn't believe how fucking hilarious it was. And, you know, you felt bad for him too, but it's just, you couldn't stop laughing. Obviously, I'm like, I, you know, I love DT and Troops. Uh, they're hysterical, fam, blood, the whole nine yards. Uh, Claude is funny on occasion because he just seems like an ornery old bastard. Um, Robbie, the guy who runs it is great. Uh, you know, and I think they get accused of being, you know, um, negative about the club, which I really feel like is a totally, not totally, but largely a bogus charge. It's a club that has declined relative to its peak. And the fans are, have, have long been in, I think not less so now, but there was a lot of years there where they were kind of in denial about it. And that denial led to frustration, and that frustration was fucking hilarious. You know, I felt bad for them because I, I, I like it when Arsenal wins. You know, it's cool when they win, especially when they stick it to Tottenham, you know? Like, it's funny. And that's the other part. Tottenham's gotten a lot better, you know? Like, it used to be that Arsenal was kind of always better than Tottenham, and they were the big club, and Tottenham had, like, the shitty stadium, and the tables have kind of turned a little bit, right? And they hate that shit, so... It's, uh, it's funny to watch. This is my point. Like, you know, Man United has had certainly some rough years. The Louis van Gaal years were not that great, and they're not, they're not a whole lot better now. But they've had, they've had way more winning. And you kind of feel like they spend enough money they could be back at it at some point in the near future. You kind of feel like Arsenal, as long as Stan Kroenke is there, they're kind of stuck. So that's, that's sort of the point, you know. Is there a specific fighter that is hardest for you to break down from a technique standpoint? I'm better at it now because I've done it so many times, but Adesanya at first was very hard. Very hard. There's a lot happening that I just could not pick up on at first. And now I've done it so many times I can see it. 
But that took a while. That was like after that Anderson Silva fight, people were like, ah, oh, it was pretty close. And I'm like, well, the second round was close, I guess, in a sense. But when you really began to look at what he was doing and how sophisticated it was relative to what Anderson was doing, not the same level. And I know Anderson's past it. I get it. I understand. But I'm just saying in that particular fight, he was hard. Um, Cruz's footwork at first was a little bit difficult for me. At first, Max Holloway, it was not difficult, but I, um, I had failed to appreciate all the nuance. So that took a few run-ins. Um, there's some other ones where I just like, fuck, what is happening here? Those are the, those are the most common ones. People seem to be ignoring. Oh, sorry, Luke. Which is worse, having your girlfriend a few? Excuse me, having your girlfriend of a few months corner you? Oh Lord. Or a con man who has zero qualifications? Well. Boy, I am very curious to see if that Mickey Gall and uh, um, uh, fuck is his name? Now my brain is not working. Not um, Mickey Gall and uh, Jesus Christ, what the fuck, guy? Uh, Mike Perry. Now I'm curious to see if that fight goes to a second round because that corner advice is going to be real interesting to see. Um. Yeah. People seem to be ignoring Stephen Thompson when speaking about welterweight. How do you see him against the top five? I mean, he beat Jorge Masvidal on Jorge's last loss, and he beat him thoroughly. It wasn't close. Um. So I would say, yeah, he's certainly still a top contender. He's just he's been like busy on YouTube, and he's not been taking fights. I don't know if he's been injured or something. I'm not sure. I forget what the issue is. Um. Who would I like to see him fight? You could say he's sitting at six, right? You don't want to have him fight Woodley again. Fuck that. You could do Maya. You could do Chiesa. You could do Dos Anjos. You could do Leon Edwards. Assuming that, you know, travel is not prohibited or something. That'd be kind of cool, right? Wouldn't be the most exciting fight, but it would be interesting. Leon versus Stephen Thompson. That'd be big. I'd like to see that. Um, thoughts on the NASCAR Bubba Wallace hoax? Well, it's not a hoax, but it is stupid. Yeah, uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if people who aren't Americans didn't see this, but the basic idea is that there's this uh, black race car driver, and you can imagine the climate in this country the last three weeks. Anyway. NASCAR was assigning different garages um, for a race. And in the garage, it was reported to the news that they had found a noose in the garage of a black driver. And you're like, well, that's terrible. And then the FBI comes out, I don't know, like a few days or a week later or something. And they're like, ah, we investigated it. It turns out that the noose was part of a, like a, like the, like the, rope you use to pull a garage door closed and then when you saw a picture of it it looked really small like it was from far away not far away but it wasn't close up it, it didn't seem all that menacing at first and then what they said was not only was it just for a garage door closer it had been there since october of 2019 which means many teams had gone through it and either like not undone it or you know had no issue with it or you know whatever it just been there for a long time uh 
or you know, uh, what's the, let's see, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June. So about nine months. And so you're like, okay, well, they clearly, so then why is this a story? Well, what you come to find out is, it, and they, this was true before the FBI made their statement, it actually was not Bubba who saw it and reported it. It was a teammate. And here's the thing. This, this was the major problem with it all. It's like, look, in the current climate they were in, imagine you're NASCAR. And imagine someone comes to you and says, hey, I found a noose. And you're like, oh, fuck. And the black driver's garage. Jesus Christ. Remember, they had just days before that, they had banned the Confederate flag, which, you know, you ever been to a NASCAR event? Here's the NASCAR. Let me tell you the good part about NASCAR. I do not give a shit what country you're from. I don't care. I've been around the world. I've been to sporting games all over the world. Nobody on earth. Most people don't even tailgate like Americans. It's very unusual. But like even packing the bars. Nobody pre-games like NASCAR. Doesn't exist. I mean, you cannot imagine how amazing NASCAR pre-gaming sort of, you know, is. Goes on for days before races. Uh, and the level of sophistication is out of this world. All right, it's it's the it is the Shangri La of pre gaming slash whatever. The problem is there's a shitload of Confederate flags when you go, and you know it's obviously a big part. It's a very contentious debate. I'm happy to see it go, but I recognize that there's a lot of people who are attached to it, and uh, you know they had banned this shit, and there were people who were like doing these protests, and there was the people who were flying the the Confederate flag over the race saying defund NASCAR. So, you know, it's not particularly the most pacified climate. So imagine you're NASCAR and someone comes to you and says, yeah, we found a noose in the black guy's garage. You'd be like, oh, fuck. If you don't do anything about that, if you don't call the authorities and that gets leaked to the press or somehow they find out, and by the way, that's how this whole story got out, is because some fucking idiot leaked it to the press before we really knew the ins and outs of this before the investigation had a chance to be complete. So whoever the genius was who did that is really the one that fucked this up because that's where the problem comes in. It was incomplete information followed by yet more incomplete information followed by better information. But at that point, kind of the damage had been done. So this is my point. If you're NASCAR, you absolutely had to call the authorities. Okay. There's this documentary that was on Netflix. That was about USA gymnastics and it turns out that the gymnasts, these teenage girls, and their parents reported to people like, hey, this dude, Dr. Larry Nasser, is, uh, you know, touching these girls inappropriately. And I'm not comparing this garage door to that. I'm just pointing out. And then they wouldn't tell anybody. You're like, I would rather someone report it to the authorities and then the authorities look at it and say, okay, there's probably not much to see here. I'm much more okay with that. Then people being like, we don't need to call the cops. No, call the fucking cops. If it's no big deal or the FBI, whatever. Have them look into this. If it's not a big deal, and that's exactly what the FBI said it was, that it's probably not a big deal, uh, then let it rock. You know, then the last piece of bit of news here is they show the, the thing up close. They show the noose up close. It is definitely a fucking noose. I mean, absolutely a noose. So then you have to ask yourself why it's there. Is it because... <laughs> the noose is like a really great way for you to tie a knot to close the garage door. Well, they looked at other garage doors, not merely in that racetrack, but across like NASCAR, uh, 
garages and it's basically unheard of. So the question you have to ask yourself is, why did someone tie a noose? And the answer is no one really knows. Listen, I listen to music by Cannibal Corpse, which, you know, there's songs about people getting fucked with a knife. Like, is it possible that someone was just bored one day and did, you know, without racial connotation, just did one of these things and everybody else subsequently came along and just didn't care? Of course. Do I blame Bubba's teammate uh, for seeing this and in the current climate saying something about it to NASCAR and then NASCAR calling the FBI? Of course not. The major problem is we didn't need to know about this until all that shit was done and not a word otherwise. Because as a consequence, we got people being like, oh, it's a hoax. It's not a hoax, but it is a fumble and that's bad enough. All right, let's go to the uh, paid questions here if we can. Very briefly. All right. I don't think there's too many today. Let's go to it. All right. Uh, Let's see here. If the UFC had no weight classes, who is the smallest current fighter that would have a realistic shot at winning the title? Like who could go up another level? Khabib, maybe. Kamaru. Kamaru, definitely. I mean, virtually any of them. John, Izzy. Like, who could go even beyond that? Maybe Henry. Because he's starting from a place where um, he's already gone up one and seemed to be dominating. But, you know, obviously we don't really know that because he left too early. Um, I don't know. It's a tough one. Because every time you go up a weight class, it starts to get real dicey. Let's go. Let's see. With Connor looking for a fight, do you think Connor will call out the winner of Poirier versus Hooker? Seems to make sense, and it would be a great fight. See, I don't think so. Because here's the thing if Poirier wins, he can be like, I've already beaten that guy. If Hooker wins, he can just be like, Yeah, you beat the guy I already beat. And I know what you're going to say. Oh, he beat him at 145 however many years ago. I understand. We're talking about what he might say. I don't know what he has to gain by beating a guy he already beat twice in Connor's mind. Or sorry, already beat him once. Or beating the guy who beat him. It's like, big deal. You did what I did already. That's like, way to go. Uh, I'd love to see it. I, I just don't know how interested he'd be. What BJJ belt would Half Thor Bjornsson need to be to reach it, be competitive at ADCC? Probably Black. Because you could say, well, wasn't, uh, what's his name, Nick something, uh, the the blue turn purple belt out of um, Dan Her Death Squad. Um, What the fuck is his name? God, I I really cannot think today. Fuck is his name? Um, Well, anyway, he he was uh, Nicky Rod, I think, Nick, Nick Rodriguez. What he has shown is that you can take someone really athletic, and he's a very quick athletic mover, and he's big and strong. Like, half the war would be way too slow, so he would have to have a really sharpened up, clear top game. Because once he went to his back, he ain't getting up. I mean, even as strong as he is, he would just gas. So, you know, if you can be a quick mover with a wrestling background, 
who can follow a very strict game plan for virtually all the matches, yes, there are ways in which you could not have to be a black belt. Otherwise, uh, was wondering if you saw Jimmy Smith's video on teaching police BJJ and if you had any thoughts. I have not. I have not seen his video. I mean, my general view on teaching police BJJ is I have trained with policemen. And this is the the common, like, this is not, I'm not going to get into the whole, like, a, whether you should or shouldn't defund police or police reform. But here's my thought about this. And this is true of any walk of life, whether it's policemen, firemen, lawyers, whoever. People talk about the redemptive value of martial arts training, in particular jujitsu, and their right to do that. But the only way that really happens is if the person who trains willingly surrenders to the process. If they go into that thing saying, I'm going to do this to get better at beating the fuck out of people, they will. Now they will take their licks along the way because it's just not possible to always win. You will have any number of very bad days. It is, it is frankly kind of endless. And maybe that does something to them a little bit. But the reality is the only way to really get the, the benefit of it is to surrender to it. And that's not automatic. Like I, I've said this before, when you go to boot camp, they'll say the same thing to you. Like, you, you know, you can go through all of this, you know, but it doesn't really reshape your character unless you want it to, unless you allow the process to do it. And so do I believe that a police officer training jujitsu and learning how, by the way, to defend themselves and also how to subdue people in a way where they're not going to go beyond necessary risk because they understand um, what control positions are like and how to achieve them more nimbly while also understanding um, having a more humane attitude that comes from having some of your ego taken away through martial arts training. Do I think that could be beneficial? No doubt, no doubt, but only a very small percentage of people in the general population ever get that from jujitsu, which means only a very small portion of the population of police officers are ever going to get that. If, if what you are arguing for is a way to, at scale, substantively perform uh, changes that makes policing better so that you don't end up with situations where someone's kneeling on a guy's neck for nine minutes, uh, I am very skeptical that, you know, requiring, I don't know, blue belt level of uh, training is what gets you there. Because also that could just, if they have bad attitudes, it's just going to make them worse. So I've seen police officers, uh, in fact, the first ever black belt ceremony I went to was a police officer. And uh, he's great. He is, he had, he surrendered to the process. But I've seen other ones come in there, man, they're fucking dicks, you know? It's, it's, it's what you want it to do to you. And unless you let it change you, it won't. It's not magic. If MMA was an Olympic sport, uh, would the U.S. have more gold medals than all other countries, including Brazil? Probably, at least historically speaking, if not contempor from a contemporary standpoint, who would win the 155-pound gold? Still going to say Khabib, but I don't know. I've trained BJJ and wrestling the past three years, and I'd like to learn MMA-specific striking. 
What's the best way to get started if I don't want to show up to my 9 to 5 desk with black eyes and CTE? Don't learn MMA striking. <laughs> if you're worried about brain trauma and black eyes, I don't recommend training striking. Uh, maybe you could go and tell an instructor that you just want to learn the basics. That's possible. But on some level, sparring is inevitable. And so, if you want to get good, you're going to get some black eyes and you're going to get your bell rung. That is, that is how it goes. Also, if MMA was an Olympic sport, would Dana even allow UFC fighters to go for three weeks? Fuck no. But, I mean, if they had a union, like if we're now just fantasizing, um, they could do what like they do in the NHL where they kind of make, you know, um, not everyone participates even with that, but you could do breaks where people can participate. Any thoughts on Masvidal's interest in fighting Khabib? Well, what he said was he'd fight anyone and that he had a high appreciation for Khabib. All he basically said was that he appreciated his game. How would that fight go down at 155 and 170? About the same way I think it would go against Kamaru at 170. Uh, how would Khabib, how would it go against Khabib at 170? I still, I like Khabib's chances. Signs are pointing to Venom being the new fight gear sponsor, according to Dana's comments on the Schmoes podcast and Ariel's reports. I've not seen Ariel's reports, but I did see the Schmoes podcast. But it was part of a trio. It was like Under Armour, Nike, and then Venom. I've not seen what Ariel said, but, you know, I don't give a shit who the sponsor is if the fighters don't get more money. It means nothing to me. I guess Venom would be more creative, maybe. I don't know. Thoughts on Usman going to Whitman? That's earlier in the show. What organization produced the better stable of fighters? WEC or Strike Force? Well, they had different missions. I'm going to say uh, Strike Force, but WEC produced many, many good fighters. I mean, Strike Force had, I mean, so many champions uh, and, and, and all the women and, you know, just a lot, a lot. Luke, the questions on the community tab are not listed in order of votes. Is there a way for you to change that? How are they listed? Sort by, it says top comments and newest first. I always go by top comments. Now, what their algorithm is, I don't know, but I don't know how else to sort it because I'm not going to do it by newest. If you, have, if you have a better idea, by all means, tell me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, but I don't know. You've been covering MMA for a while. What is your end game? You know what my end game is? I want to develop a program. Like, I want to have the jeopardy of MMA. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean a quiz show. That's not what I mean. But jeopardy has been on the air for like, you know, decades at this point. It's just an institution. I want to have a show so popular that, not that it does like killer ratings every time, but that it's popular enough that it just sticks around and you just surf on that. Because what I really notice about all these, all these things is like, you know, whether it's the pandemic or it's not, people's podcasts, they come and go. This shit will come and go. You know, uh, jobs come and go. If you can get a job like Jeopardy, man, you're set for life, you know? It's amazing. It's like such a feature of people's lives that, yeah, okay, it was in the news when people were tearing it up and Ken Jennings was taking on this, that, and the other. But 
you know, day to day, it doesn't make news. It's just kind of there. I think that's what I want. And then I want to just get better at um, breaking down fights. Uh, what two Real Madrid players would you like to see go? And what two players would you like to see Real sign? You can drop Bale. And believe it or not, this is going to break everyone's hearts. Uh, I would like to see Hamas go. And the reason why is because he clearly has no place on that team. And I would like to see him go to a place where he can be featured. Whether that's in Italy or some other team. Because they're just wasting his time. And Bale doesn't want to give Bale just doesn't give a fuck anymore. And, you know, he's injured half the time, literally a third of the time. So who would I like to see them sign? Mbappe. And who's another one? Some of those defenders are getting a little bit old. Ramos is getting a little bit old. I don't think Carvajal is that old yet, is he? How old is Danny Carvajal? Uh, Varane is young. How old is that fool, Danny? 28, so he's okay. But Ramos, he is, yeah, he's 34. So he's getting up there. So, um, I am not sure. God, who would replace him? Marcelo's getting old too. I'm not sure who they would even replace the Ramos. I'd have to. Um, I'd think about that. What's that dude's name? The Delegate, Delit, Delight, D E L I G T. You can go with him, I suppose. That's a dude you could sign. Uh, okay. What lifts carry over best for grappling strength? I think farmer walks. So for grip, I'm going to say deadlift, particularly sumo. I'm going to say um, bench doesn't mean jack. I think rowing will do a lot for you. Um, uh, anything with anything with a hip hinge. So you could do like Romanian deads. You could do, and eh, you could do standard deads. And then, and then I, I just always believe you get better activation off your uh, posterior chain with deads. But any kind of hip hinge is going to be key. I think any kind of uh, back strength is going to be key. Uh, grip strength is going to be key. So you can start with those. Name fighters fans underrate, but coaches rate high. Got to be Aljamain Sterling. Um, who's another one that fans underrate that coaches are like, dude, that guy's a motherfucker. Dan Ige is one. Um, Cater, Calvin Cater is another. Josh Emmett uh, is a huge one. Uh, Kevin Lee, uh, Leon Edwards, uh, I'm not sure who they say that about at middleweight, uh, Rakic, Reyes, uh, Blades, yeah, the, you might know that these guys are good, but those are some ones that coaches tell me that, you know, they don't have necessarily the biggest fanfare, but they still do pretty great work. 
Let's see. Who wins an MMA-themed game of Jeopardy between me, Gross, Breen, Fridley, and Wyman? Ooh. Probably Breen, right? Because I have definitely fallen off, and he has a real specialty when it comes to Japanese knowledge. I, I would lose there. Wyman, though, you know, he was on real Jeopardy. He did pretty good. Fridley is super underrated, and Gross is an OG. Probably Breen. I think he would be, you know, if I did a, had to do a power ranking, I'd put him number one. What are your thoughts on his, on the recent Sam Harris podcast regarding Black Lives Matter? I've seen you like his tweet. Yes, I did. For me, his clarity of thought is unrivaled. The reason I liked it is because I was, I think he said that we were entering a moral panic about the police that was overstated. But I've actually not heard it. I did. If you look at my likes, which you're free to do, you'll see I like a lot of things that might be out there. It doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it. I'm just curious to hear what they have to say. That's true for right and left. So I did it as a way to like go back and find it and listen to it. I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. So I'm very curious to hear. So maybe ask me next week. I'll have a better, a better answer for you. I apologize. But I, I did like it. I am interested in hearing it. But I have not had a chance to listen to it yet. Thoughts on federalizing local police forces. Systemic racism seems to be exacerbated by failures in the disciplinary process at the local level. Right, but that's probably more tied to certain laws and unions. Federalizing local police or federalizing police forces is what they have in Latin America. And let me assure you, that is no solution. Um, so no, I'm not in favor of it. Please do more technique talks like the one with Wonder Boy and Sonnen. Yes, uh, I have no place to publish them though, right? Because I can do the conversations, but they were written up. And if you don't, like, here's the thing, if you guys don't know this, if I do an interview and I don't write it up and someone else doesn't write it up and publish it somewhere, a lot of times it goes unnoticed. I mean, you guys might watch it on the channel if you're a subscriber, but a lot of times it goes unnoticed. If someone writes it up, it'll explode. So there's a key component to not just doing the interview, but then someone writing it up and then sharing it on a big platform. Sort of it's one of the challenges of going on your own. Like if you go on a platform, they take all your work. That, that's the downside. The upside is that your work gets a lot more noticed. So like I did a Sean O'Malley interview with a bunch of news in it and a lot of it never got broken. Then he does an interview somewhere else. Someone else, he mentions the same shit and then it gets all the stuff written up. It's like... You know, it's kind of hard to, you're kind of fucked on that. So, um, so if I had a place to publish it, I would. As I researched this card, and I can never pronounce this guy's name correctly, I noticed Kyle Dawkins has had five Dars finishes in his nine fight career. Who are the top three fighters with one go-to submission that achieved success in MMA? Um, you know, obviously Eminari with the heel hooks. I think Ferguson has done a lot with uh, uh, Dars chokes. Um, obviously, Cody McKenzie had the guillotine for a while. Ronda Rousey with the arm bar. Demi and Maya with chokes from the back. Um, God, who was the guy who had all the triangles? I forget. Uh Some other ones I must be missing. Who 
Or some other one. Um, you know, Verdum just can do all of it. Uh, that's the problem with him. The guys who are really good can just do all of it. They rarely have like the one go-to. They're just some decent ones, right? I'm bringing a new girlfriend to watch the fight with my bros tomorrow. What the fuck is wrong with you? I have a 0% retention rate with girls I watch fight with. Wish me luck. Well, I'm not going to wish you luck. You're making a tremendous mistake. Don't do that shit. And you'll be, I might be like, oh, Luke, you can't watch f fights with girls. I watch fights with my wife. And she like I was watching fights before we were married with her. You got to ease her into that one, bro. <laughs> I want to make a terrible joke that I won't. But, you know. You got to, you know. <laughs> oh, people said OSP with the, uh, with the, um, what choke is that? The, uh, the Von Pru choke, right? So that's another one as well. How are you? Coolest memory with your kids so far. Well, you know what I did actually? Hold on. Oh, it's my coolest. My coolest memory was taking my daughter swimming in Cartagena, but uh, I, I on this camera for my daughter's first birthday, I uh, took a bunch of pictures, and then I got on Google Photos and I was looking at it. and I was like, "Wow, man, that's a really good photo." And I, I don't take good photos. I always take universally bad photos, but this one came out really good, and uh, and you can buy photos off like. Google Photos on all different kinds. I got a canvas one of this size. Check this out. Hang on, I gotta be able to see this, otherwise I can't. It's pretty good. So if you notice, her face is a mess, and her hands are too. But uh, we got her a scooter that has wheels, but we can also push it. Right, got a little cup holder there. She's wearing a cool little jean jacket, and she had just eaten a bunch of cake and spaghetti, so her face was a mess, and she's outside. Anyway. Uh, I nearly cried when I looked at this picture because I thought it was just so special for me. You know, I can't imagine it does anything for you. But anyway, that sticks out. But my favorite memory was taking my kid in the pool for the first time. That was pretty fun. Uh, let's see. Why is it you never include Aldo in your goat discussion? Seems to tick all of your boxes. Long reign of dominance over good competition. Yes, just not as good as the other ones. With recent concerns about cornering, do you think it would be worth mandating one of the fighter's corners to have some basic medical training to assist with medical advocacy? No, they don't need medical advocacy. They need someone who has health considerations. They don't need someone who can do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. How does Marab match up with Sean O'Malley? Uh, poorly, because Sean O'Malley is probably going to tune him up on the feet, and if he does get takedowns, he doesn't hold him down very much. And Sean's going to get back to his feet. So I don't like that matchup with former Rob. I don't know if this is real. Hold on. This is a person here asking a question about life advice that needs help. I don't know if it's trolling or not. On the chance that it is, I will say, please seek the counsel of people who know more about this than me. Uh, would MMA succumb to the same issues boxing has if it was under the Ali Act? 
it might. It might. I mean, here's the reality about like fighter pay. You want fighters to get more money because you think it's the right thing. There might be some benefits to the sport in terms of talent it recruits, but maybe not. But that's not the reason to advocate for fighter pay. The reason to advocate for fighter pay is because it's the right thing to do. Most influential three people in MMA history. How would the sport have changed if these people had never existed? Obviously, Hoist. You could probably Hoist. I mean, the, the ones you could point to are like Hoist, Ken Shamrock, Tito, Chuck, Randy, Forrest with Stefan given the fight, uh, Brock. Connor, Ronda, you know, and you can obviously mention some of the greats beyond that. St. Pierre, Jones, Anderson, even BJ Penn, you could put on that list. Um, you know, pick your three from there. All right, pick your three from there. Weidman versus Akhmedov shows the UFC want to see the young talent smash him uh, versus him in a fan-friendly fight like Anderson Silva, which is more valuable to the UFC. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about the Akhmedov fight for Weidman that I do like. He needed to dial it back. I mean, just fighting these guys at the top of the division did not make sense. And Akhmedov is, is ranked, but I mean, you know, outside the top five, certainly maybe out in top ten, rather than, um, you know, this craziness of him just fighting the top guys all the time. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense. On the other hand... You could solve that problem and Anderson Silva's problem by having them fight a third time. But UFC doesn't want to do that, appears. Uh, Luke, do you think we'll have an independent or libertarian president in our lifetime? Ooh, in our lifetime. Well, I'm 40, so let's say I managed to croak at 70. In 30 years, which is about, what, eight presidential cycles? Um... So where were we in 1990 relative to where we are now? Not that different. Uh, probably not. Probably not is what I would say. Oh, someone was asking, you were going on JRE, what happened? It, it, I don't think anything's changed, but we have not spoken about putting a date on things. I've not reached, I think he's probably waiting for me to reach out, and I don't know what the right answer is because now... Cases are going up in California. And, you know, what does that mean? I have no fucking idea what it means. None of us do. Even epidemiologists probably don't really know. None of us really know. But, like, on the chance that it gets real bad, because I was thinking about hitting him up and being like, what about sometime in early August? My birthday is the 5th. Maybe take some vacation time. Go out there, right? Flights are dirt cheap. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how you do that. I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. My wife was like, fuck, no, you're not doing that. So... I mean, she eventually relented in the end. She's like, if you really want to, you can, but I strongly counsel against it. So I don't know what the right answer is. I really, and I don't, everyone was like, do the thing over Skype. I don't want to do the thing over Skype. I kind of want to wait because I may only get one chance to go on. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know what the right answer is. I really don't. I have no idea. Except now I'm in this holding pattern, which also sucks. So I don't know, folks. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I don't know what to tell you. It kind of, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. Thank you guys so much for watching. Enjoy the fights tomorrow and until next time, stay frosty.